Hey, Jen. Hey, Tina. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. You're listening to Speaking of Racism. Hello, everyone. Hey there, Jen. Hello, Tina. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. I want to just get started by first saying thank you to those who joined us for our webinar yesterday. Yeah. We did a webinar, our monthly webinar in our Patreon community, and it was uh, Black History Month and you. So we're actually going to be uploading that to live on the page. So those people who wanted to be a part of that conversation about Black History Month, um, as well as the ultimate goal of not limiting to our learning and educating ourselves and celebrating Black History to just February, but continuing that throughout the year, 365 days. So yeah, if anyone is interested in, in uh, following along and, and being a part of that webinar, you can join our Patreon community and that's where it will be. So just, yeah, thanks for being on that. Those of you who were able to make it. Yeah. And speaking of black history, we are excited because today's show is really highlighting it on a number of levels. Yeah, it does. So a few weeks ago, you and I went on a legacy trip and we went to Montgomery, Alabama, and we visited the lynching memorial and the legacy museum. And this is a trip that we've talked about a little bit previously on episodes as well as on our social media pages. And it was a remarkable experience together. There were seven of us in attendance and we were all from seven different states. So I, I thought that was incredible from Detroit and from Dallas, from Atlanta, from San Francisco, North Carolina. I feel like I'm missing Indiana. So yeah, we, we, we got together, all of us for that legacy trip and to experience that together. And we were sadly, Bex, uh, Rebecca Baruki wasn't able to join us. She got sick at the last minute. So she's going to be a guest with a, an upcoming legacy trip. So she wasn't able to be at this one. So I'm looking forward to having her in a a few months, I believe, in one of our August trips. So that's um, a lot of what we're going to talk about today is what you and I experienced on the legacy trip, what that was like for us going through the memorial in the museum, along with one of the other women who went with us, which is Letty Shoemate. Letty joined us for our Black History Month, as well as very first legacy trip of 2020 over the past weekend, where we visited the National Memorial for Peace and Justice and the Legacy Museum from Enslavement to Mass Incarceration, both projects of the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama. So Letty, thanks for joining us on the show today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Absolutely. Well, I'd want to jump right in and get your thoughts around the memorial and the museum overall. And I think what I really want to know from you as both a Black woman and as a historian, what would you say your expectations were before going to Montgomery compared to what the experience was actually like for you? Yeah, so... I mean, I definitely expected it to be emotional and I expected it to be heavy. 
Oh, and I'll also add, I did expect to feel differently in Montgomery, Alabama. I had never been to Alabama before, but I've studied so much history about Alabama, the dark history of Alabama, lynching history, civil rights history, everything that was and still is hidden from basic American knowledge when it comes to the state. So I was ready for all the feelings. But when I got to the memorial and, you know, walking in and seeing the statues, I was like, all right, I can handle this. I read a lot of lynching history and it is heavy, but I am glad that I have the strength to do that. But Whenever I got into the actual memorial with the pillars, I was overcome with so much more than I expected it to be. And what I mean by that is whenever, you know, I first walked in and the pillars are there and they're eye level with you, you know, you can read the names and these things. It was already giving me chills. But then whenever I walked, I turned the corner and as you turn the corner and kind of go on a downhill slope and the pillars are over your head. And that for me was whenever I just started tearing up. I couldn't even help it. I just, this wave of emotions came over me. And it's because for me, it symbolized the fact that even though these pillars had names on them for all of the people, the thousands and thousands of men, black men, black women, and black children who were lynched, even though the names were on these pillars, we still couldn't see them. And so it represented for me this black body that would have been hanging. And as other black people are walking past this, because this is what happened, is they would leave the bodies up for fear. Like they, they wanted to intimidate other black people, that these black people are walking underneath these bodies or however many it would have been in whichever town or city. And they don't know their name, or maybe they do. And it just represented the fact that there are, are so many also that are still unknown that have names, but they're nameless right now. And it just, it, it was just a lot. It was a lot. I was angry. I was obviously sad. I was hurt. And I had to sit down a couple of times just because being there and being in Montgomery, Alabama with Already this different feeling that I had, this sort of, not twilight zone, but it just felt kind of eerie. Already being there for me as a historian, and just for me as Letty, I feel things very deeply whenever it comes to history. Uh, and this was just another one of those experiences where I'm walking somewhere, I'm walking in a place where who knows what happened in history. And so, yeah, it was heavy. Um, and... As I made my way through and eventually it's you're back outside and then there are more pillars outside and there is an Ida B. Wells little memorial garden and there's a Toni Morrison quote on one of the walls and it was just, it was powerful. It was so powerful and I did not know how anyone could go there and not be changed. And now on to the Legacy Museum. And so the Legacy Museum was a whole other wave of emotions. That was absolutely amazing. And I know I've said powerful already for the lynching memorial, but the Legacy Museum was powerful in another way. So it obviously traces this pipeline from slavery to mass incarceration today. When I first walked in and we're standing in a spot where 
slaves were once held in this legacy museum, which used to be the slave warehouse in Montgomery, Alabama, I again was just overcome with these emotions. And as I was walking through that museum, the amount of history and the like the amount of research that was done to allow well, for one, for the lynching memorial, but also for the legacy museum, the level of history, the level of research, the level of time, the amount of time was amazing to me. And you can't take pictures in the museum. And I'm actually glad because people need to go and read all of the things. People need to go and read the accounts of enslaved women begging for their children. People need to go and read the accounts of what happened to enslaved people in this slave warehouse. People need to go and read about convict leasing. People need to go read about what happened. And there's a back room to the Legacy Museum and you walk in and it's all of these heroes, all these Black heroes in history. And James Baldwin, who is my favorite, favorite Black intellectual man in history, his face is up there. Angela Davis is up there. Ida B. Wells, Bayard Rustin, Fannie Lou Hamer, you know, all of these iconic, Black men and women who did so much for us, their faces are there. So in the midst of walking around in this legacy museum and seeing the soil in the jars from different counties that have done the soil remembrance projects, and in the midst of seeing these letters written to Brian Stevenson today from children, and I say children because they are children that are 14 and 15 who are in adult prisons asking Brian Stevenson for help, you know, seeing all of this, it's like in the midst of all that, there is this room of hope and this room that just shows that there was and always will be a level of resilience and perseverance in the Black community that racism, white supremacy, discrimination cannot take away. It was powerful, but I was just like, this is one floor. That's what the Legacy Museum is, but it takes about two hours to get through it because there's so much to dig and dive into. But I'm so glad that I was able to go and I'm so glad that I experienced it because it just motivated and inspired me to just do even more for racial justice and this advocacy work that I'm out here doing and the educating that I'm doing. Thank you so much for that. Um, Jen, what were your thoughts? Going to the Legacy Museum and the memorial was far more powerful than I could have even imagined. And I'm really still processing through a lot of it. Uh, I feel like I could go back several more times to just have an opportunity to take it all in. But just to be there and to be there with you guys and the group of women that we were there with was also very powerful. I felt like I was walking through something and bearing witness to something that was very important. And not just to mark the past or to learn about the past, but also to learn about and see the relevance and the importance of how this is still impacting people today. So going to the Legacy Museum and seeing the trajectory from enslavement to mass incarceration was very eye-opening and very informative, and it really helped to bring pieces of history together in a way that 
I didn't quite understand. So yeah, I just felt like it was really important and sacred. And I would recommend that everybody go and bear witness to this. Letty, what are your thoughts about who the memorial in the museum is for? Who is it that needs to be sure that they go and spend time in Montgomery and bear witness by visiting the memorial in the museum? Who's it for? Is it for everybody or just white people? Or what are your thoughts? I believe that this memorial is for everyone, but for different reasons. So the National Memorial for Peace and Justice is the country's first memorial commemorating the thousands of Black Americans who were lynched in America. And I say that because this is why Black people need to go and see this, because this is something that is our history. And we've always been shown that our lives do not matter in history. And this memorial shows that our lives do matter. That this is a way I feel Brian Stevenson wanted to, and I'm not trying to put words in his mouth, but this is what I feel he was trying to do was saying, no, Black lives do matter. And let me have this memorial that shows that. Let's bear witness. Let's show that racial terror lynchings are part of our history that needs to be acknowledged. And that's also by Black people because it it is hard. And I definitely know a lot of Black people who are hesitant to even dive into a lot of our own history because it is heavy. And also another reason is because a lot of people who are still alive today have lived this. I mean, I saw years like 1949, 19, I mean, 1955, whenever lynchings happened. And I mean, my father is, he was born in 1945. So this wasn't a long time ago. And so I feel like Black people definitely need to go to the memorial and to the museum because it will show our history, but it also will show the fact that here we are still fighting white supremacy. Here we are still standing against racism, still speaking up against racism. And then for white people, that to me is just all white people need to go, just period. <laughs> um, and it's because this is American history, but it's also like, I feel like a lot of people say like, oh, you know, I, I want to be a good ancestor. And I hear white people saying this too. Well, if you want to be a good ancestor, you need to go see what white America did. Yeah. And you need to take that and you need to reckon with that. And then you need to ask yourself what you're doing to not allow the same racism and the same hate because racial terror lynchings have not gone anywhere. Racial terror has just evolved to look a different way. So like, what are you doing in your anti-racism journey? Are you even on an anti-racism journey? Do you even know this history? Let me actually just go to that. This history isn't even in many books in this country. So. White people need to go and you need to feel all the feelings and white people need to confront the fact that what happened and what the memorial symbolizes, what the museum shows and tells us. And then the, the museum, there's so much history there that I'm sure a lot of white people in America are not aware of. And there's something about going and being in a location where horrific things happened. You know, people do want to talk about the Holocaust and going to the concentration camps today and 
feeling it. And it's like, you'll, you'll feel that same thing if you go to Alabama. And if you don't feel it, ask yourself why you're not feeling it. And is it because you don't want to acknowledge the history because it happened to black people? So, um, right. yeah. And I just feel like walking through the museum, reading the history, seeing the facts, seeing all of the rhetoric said by white people in power, seeing all the laws that were put into place, seeing all of the ways that segregation was enforced and seeing all of that in conjunction with the memorial will allow, and I'm hoping, I'm hoping that it'll open the eyes of many white people. There was this power for me as a white woman to be in the midst of this space and to reckon with the fact that these lynchings were happening in the late 40s and early 50s. And to see that and to be impacted by that and to then think through my grandparents were alive. My mother was born. You know, my aunt was alive. And to just think historically, like we like to place ourselves in story. Right. And so it's like, okay, so in history, where was this? Who was alive then? How was that impacting things? And it, it brought it alive in this very real, very tangible way. And, and I remember being in the Legacy Museum and looking at the pictures and many of us have seen these pictures. And I think they were probably from like Chicago when King was there trying to shine a light on housing disparities and these kids are holding signs and I'm looking at these kids going, these kids are still alive today, right? Like, where are they? Where do they live? Did they have a family? How did that hatred seep and move into the next generation? So that to me was just like, wow, it was really impactful. For people who have thought about going to the Memorial and the Museum, but they are still hesitating. They're still on the fence with whether or not this is a trip that they need to make. What would you say to them? I would tell them that they should absolutely go if they are feeling led to. And even if they're not necessarily feeling led to, but they're curious and they have the opportunity to go to also go. Because I feel like this isn't, we're, we're no longer in a place in our country where we can put butt behind everything. You know, we're, we're no longer in a place in our country for the umpteenth time, but we're no longer in a place in our country where it's okay to just say, you know what? I don't have to do that. This doesn't affect me. I feel like our country is just fine. We should be grateful to be here. And you can think that latter part where we can be grateful to be here. But what you also have to do is acknowledge the fact that you need to understand why the struggle for freedom and the struggle for equity and dismantling racism continues. And plus, just to see the history, just to read, just to feel everything. And for white people in particular, it's not enough to be on social media and share a post about equality or about equity. It's not enough to just say, oh, well, I don't believe in this racist idea. It's not enough to do that. You actually have to walk the walk and not just talk the talk because we're in a place now where we see what's happening nationally in our country. We see the overt racism. We see the overt xenophobia. We see the overt homophobia. We see all of these things happening. So go, go and bear witness to people who were killed 
simply for breathing and being Black in America. Thank you for that. Jen, what are your thoughts about folks, and in particular white people? What would you say to people that are on the fence and not being decisive about making this trip? I would say go, and that it's such an important trip to take. For me, it doesn't matter where you're at on your journey, and it doesn't matter how long or how much you understand this history. There are always layers that are just peeling away and realizations that are happening. And so to give this context in a very physical and tangible way was incredibly powerful. And for me, I felt like this was a pilgrimage of sorts, where I was walking and in walking and taking those steps through this space in looking at the names and in saying those names and in being physically present in that space. For me, that was an act of honoring. It was an act of resistance and it was an act of forging a new path. In, in this concept of being a good ancestor. It was just a really powerful experience to move my body through that space and be a part of creating a new history. Absolutely. Thank you for that, Jen. I greatly appreciate both of you being willing to share your thoughts and what you felt and experienced by going to Montgomery this past weekend and being willing to talk about it, being willing to let people know how it affected you and encourage people to make this trip and commit to it and not run from it. And I think that's the, mm -hmm. the, the last thing that I would say is for people who know about the Memorial Museum, if going to the Memorial Museum is something that at any point you have felt led to do, I would encourage you to simply listen to that and be obedient to that because there's always going to be an excuse and a reason to not do something that you know you need to do. And the longer that you put it off, the less likely you are to commit to it. So I think that we have to just be careful to not overthink things, right? Careful to not overanalyze and really just follow your heart when it comes to this, especially for those who have read the book, Just Mercy, watched the movie, Just Mercy. Maybe you've heard Brian Stevenson speak. Maybe you're aware of the Equal Justice Initiative. If these things have made an impact in your life, then I encourage, and what we all three of us are saying is we encourage you to take the next step and make a commitment to going to Montgomery and walk through that space and see why you were led there because there's a reason. And I think that that's what we're all saying. It's, it's a transformative trip. You will not regret it. It will change you in ways that we can't even explain. It's something that you've got to experience for yourself. So thank you both for going on that trip and that journey with me this past weekend. I really think that your presence there was immensely important. And it was just a beautiful space to share with both of you. It was such an incredible experience. And thank you, Tina, for that opportunity and just for being so patient and willing and just humble. Because as a Black woman, I know that it is really difficult to hold space, especially in, in spaces like that. Um, So thank you. It was so awesome. I'm glad that you were there. Thank you, Letty. 
So we didn't want to end our conversation with Letty there, and she agreed to come back on and talk to me about her work as a historian and tell us a little bit about who she is and how she has come to the place that she is today. So I hope you enjoy. All right, welcome to the show today. Today I am joined by my friend and historian, Letty Shoemate. Letty is a historian, a racial and social justice activist and advocate, an educator, and a public speaker. She is the host of the podcast, Sincerely Letty, where she educates about history and bridges the past to the present. She discusses racial and social issues, and she doesn't hold back on the truth with hard topics and tough conversations. Letty is on the board of directors for both the Bellamy Mansion and the YWCA in Wilmington, North Carolina, and she is a co-founder for the new Hanover County Community Remembrance Project through the Equal Justice Initiative. Welcome to the show, Letty. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited too. We really wanted to take the time to highlight you and the amazing person that you are. And so I just want to start out and kind of ask you to tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and what has brought you to this point. Yeah, so thank you so much for that introduction as well. I was born in Maryland. Both of my parents, though, were born in North Carolina. My dad was born in 1945. My mom was born in 1951. So they have seen quite a bit, and they actually left the South and lived in Maryland for about 25 years. And we moved down, though, to North Carolina in 1993. I grew up living next door to my grandma and my granddad. I'm actually named after my grandmother. She passed away two years ago. My dad is a minister. My Mm -hmm. mom is a minister's wife. And I want to talk about this some, though, because I feel like this is an integral part of my story. And it's also important for other people to hear. My dad was ordained in 1992. And I did not grow up in a household that was very controlling whenever it came to Christianity. So Mm -hmm. we didn't grow up with this same image of Christianity that white evangelicals have. I grew up in a Southern Black Baptist church. My dad actually never had his own church. He didn't want his own church. And I admire him for that. And he had his reasons for that. And so many times I've seen him go to churches and preach. They would give him money and he'd write it back to them in a check. I saw my parents really embodying Jesus. The teaching of the Black church is rooted a lot more in faith and hope and finding the strength in the stories in the Bible. And the reason for that is because of our history. The reason for that is because, you know, enslaved people literally had nothing else to hold on to. So we had to find ways to hold on. Yeah. And one way was through faith. They, though, just showed us how to live, how to treat people. And my dad and mom showed that you can love Jesus and you can call out wrong. You can love Jesus and you can call out racism. There is nothing wrong with speaking up. What was your turning point for you with regards to going into history and focusing on what you're focusing on today? So there were two turning points, really. So one was whenever Troy Davis was executed in September of 2011. And he was a black man 
there's all this evidence of innocence for him and he was accused of killing a police officer. I just remember them choosing to execute him and he should not have been killed. And so that stirred something in me, but it really was 2012 whenever Trayvon Martin was killed. I was just like, what is happening right now? Like a kid, a kid. And all I could think was I've worn hoodies with my hood up my whole life. I mean, I grew up in a black family, have black cousins, you know, like we wear hoodies. We put our hoods like my life. I could be shot and killed. My brother could be shot and killed. And For me, whenever Trayvon Martin was killed, it was also at the time whenever Barack Obama was president. And so I'm in this time whenever I was excited, you you know, that, that Barack was president. And we have this idea in this country of, oh, well, we've progressed. But of course, I'm just like, well, having a black president doesn't mean that we've progressed. But I also was coming into the person who I am now and was really trying to pay attention to these things. And Trayvon Martin was just it. That was it. And then after the incident happened with him and he was murdered, the plethora of black men and women who were being murdered by police officers, that stirred something in me. It was just, when is enough enough? Mm -hmm. And it was honestly like, okay, well, our lives don't matter. And that's why in 2013, whenever people started saying Black Lives Matter, I said it too. Because for so long, history has shown us that our lives don't matter. And then here we are in 2012 to 2013, still being shown that our lives don't matter because Black Lives Matter is being met with All Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter. So it was a lot for me. And I was also, you know, in graduate school at the time. And so I'm studying the Black Panthers. I'm digging through archives in DC. I'm going through primary digital archives online to do all this primary research with African-American history and everything you can think of. (laughs) And while I'm doing that, there's also this movement going on in our country. So it was a lot. Did you always know that you would go into history? I actually did not like history growing up. I hated it. We learned the same five things. And the Black people I did learn about were like Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, Harriet Tubman. And it was just about slavery. It wasn't until college whenever I was like, wow, there's more history out here than this whitewashed history that I've been taught my whole life. I went on to get my master's in history from the University of North Carolina at Wilmington. And I completed that in 2015. And I focused on American history, but you have to learn all of American history. And UNCW's master's in history program was extremely rigorous. I focused on African-American studies, though. So all Black history, Black power, civil rights movement, gender and race studies. I mean, you name it. That is what I focused on, but I had to learn all of American history. Mm. It really, yeah, it really molded me into the historian that I am today. And not just because I was reading 10 books a week, but in writing copious <laughs> amounts of papers and whatnot right. and digging through, you know, research and archives. But it's because my professors that I had made it a point for me to understand that I'm going to be challenged as a historian in American society. And one of my favorite professors, Dr. Glenn Harris, he made it a point for me to also understand that I'm a Black woman. And so he 
always challenged me with anything I thought to be sure that I knew how to defend myself and how to defend it with fact and how to stand firm and be able to use my voice to advocate for the history that is not taught. And I also went back to graduate school to get another master's degree in conflict management and resolution. So I had a very busy three years. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. But the reason why I decided to go back and get another master's instead of a PhD is because I don't think it's important for me personally right now in my life to have doctor in front of my name. And we don't have people who really mediate conversations whenever it comes to racism, hate, inequality, socioeconomic oppression, you know, these issues that we're seeing so blatantly in our country right now. And so, yeah, I feel like conflict management and resolution is very needed. And we need more people who are going to be able to have the skills and knowledge to mediate conversations and also help people know how to communicate with those who do not agree with them. Because it's not enough anymore to just say, oh, well, I just don't want to talk about it. I don't want to cause a conflict. Well, there's ways Mm -hmm. to navigate that. Like, There's ways you can navigate conversations, even if you do see a conflict arising. Whenever it comes to racism in our country and when it comes to advocating for Black people and people of color, whenever it comes to being anti-racist, you can't just walk away from conversations all the time. What are you doing now? So yeah, now I'm doing historian work in Wilmington um, on, you know, two different boards. I'm doing my podcast. I started this small group in Wilmington that's called The Rooted Project. And mm-hmm. it's like an anti-racism group. And so we just started that. And I just started that back in December. And I continue to read four and five books at a time. I'm finishing my master's program. And I'm also trying to do a couple other projects right now. I do a lot of things for free. Uh, you of- are so busy. And I know this about you. And, and continue to learn about all of the projects that you do. You are a fellow podcaster. And this is actually how we met on the internet. I came across your podcast and started listening to it and was just blown away listening to this amazing woman speaking about history and taking me through and teaching me so many things that I did not know. Tell me a little bit about when you decided to start Sincerely Letty and what your goal was and maybe some of your favorite series or episodes. Yeah, so I actually had a blog before I had the podcast. But I realized that I could not type everything I wanted to say. I love to talk and talking about history is my thing. So I was like, you know what? I should start a podcast. And everyone else is telling me, you should start a podcast. So I was like, okay. But it was, it sounded honestly kind of odd to me because I was like, well, I would just be talking to myself. And, you know, all these questions of are people going to listen? Do they want to hear history podcasts? You know, I just recorded one day. And that's how it started. (laughs) I um, did a little bit of research to see what the minimal technology was that I would need because I'm not tech savvy. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah, so I was like, what's the easiest way to do this? So I Mm -hmm. started it. And it was great. The first episode did not feel natural. Because I'm sitting in my office, like one of our spare bedrooms, and I'm just talking to a wall. So right. it didn't feel quite natural, but I did get the hang of it. And I absolutely love doing it. And the reason why I love doing it is because I just get to, people get to hear my voice. 
whenever you're reading an article or reading a blog post, you don't get to hear the emotion in anyone's voice. And so a podcast, when I talk about history, people hear my frustration. They hear my anger. They hear my voice crack whenever I'm talking about something emotional, like my lynching podcast episodes. Mm -hmm. And I personally think that's very important because it also... For people who li- who are listening, it lets them see that I'm a person. Like, I'm not just this historian that is sitting behind this microphone, not moved by any of this. Like, I'm yeah. still a Black woman. This is my history I'm talking about. These are things that my ancestors experienced. And I think it's just so important that people know. I love doing it. I also have the opportunity to talk about whatever I want and however yeah, I want. Yeah. And I get to show that being a historian is not the same as being a history lover. And I Ooh, think yeah, I like that. Cause I'm a yeah. history lover. Yeah. But I am right. Like, what does mm-hmm. that mean? <laughs> right. And it's like, we all can love something, but it's like to have an area of expertise means a lot, especially when it comes to history. Um, yeah. There's a lot for me to like wrap, wrap my head around. Whenever I was getting my master's in history, what I didn't do was just go and say, I want to write a paper on the Black Panther Party and their WIC program. Mm-hmm. No. That's not what I could do. I I couldn't just go and just find all these secondary sources, which are sources already written by people after, you know, 1975 and just regurgitate their information. What I had to do is I had to go read everything that's been written up until that time I was in graduate school about the Black Panther Party and come up with an argument about them that had never been said before. Mm. And that's what I had to do for everything. So everything I did in graduate school to be a historian You aren't just out here saying the same thing over and over again. You are in a way, but you're also like, that's why we have so many books about everything. And it's like, we all have so many books about the Civil War. We have so many books about racism in America. We have so many books about so many history topics. And the reason why is because there are different theses that historians have. And so, yeah, the podcast allows me to just show that I'm able to connect so many dots for people that they may not be able to connect. Like if you were to give me two things in history, I can connect them. And it's just, that's that's how my brain works. My brain already works fast anyway. (laughs) Um, Usually, you know, people are on A, B, and C, and I've already jumped to M and N. Like it's just how my brain is. And I'm thankful for that. It's added to the historian that I am. And I love doing research. I don't mind sitting for eight hours and researching and digging through digital archives. I love finding information that's been hidden and bringing it to light. And the podcast is really a place where I've learned with feedback from people where they're just happy to know this history that no one ever told them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have people who are like, I had no idea about this. I... I did a series back in the fall. It was a Jim Crow series. Mm-hmm. And that's one of my favorites. I mean, yeah. my podcast has been out since, I think, July. But I love the Jim Crow series. But two episodes everyone needs to listen to. They're the two episodes I do in that series that are about lynching and racial terror in America. Mm. And it's a part one and it's a part two. And I, in part one show the hypocrisy of laws and policy put in place by states and the federal government, which allowed for racial terror and lynchings to happen. 
this isn't stuff that you're just going to go out there and just find. Like I have to know how to connect the dots and pull it all together. And I do. And also being a black woman, I already see history, but from a different lens as a white person, because Mm -hmm. I experience racism. I experience oppression. I have been taught to defend myself. I've been taught to be observant. I've been taught to look for what's not there. And there's also a part in me, and I believe that it's just a God-given talent, to want to not be complicit with lies. I feel like that series, though, is will really show people how you can see history on so many deeper levels and you even knew existed. So that series is really wonderful. Also at the beginning of my podcast, I did some episodes about white privilege. I did Mm -hmm. one about white fragility and I did one on tone policing and microaggressions. Mm -hmm. And I think all white people should listen to those. All people need to listen to those in general, but especially for white America. And the reason is because I throw some history in there as well. I give some examples. And even though I do talk about social issues, I always do connect it to history because so often people want to isolate history whenever we talk about politics. They want to isolate history and then we talk about socioeconomic oppression or isolate history and we talk about white privilege. And you just cannot do that. Yeah, it's fascinating to me because like, I love history and I love studying history. And the more that I study, the more that I understand about my surroundings. But I'm constantly surprised by how irrelevant some people think it is. It's like you just kind of think, oh, history are just these facts that are taught to us. And and largely maybe because in our public school and average educational system, you are taught dates facts. It's very dry. It's very boring. What does this have to do with today? You know, I remember growing up kind of feeling like, (laughs) what relevance does this have to today? So I love this idea as you're talking that you are a detective. You are a storyteller. You are an interpreter. You are a connector of the past and the present and how relevant those are to life today. Now, you have a favorite quote by James Baldwin. Will you read it for us? Yes, it is. People are trapped in history and history is trapped in them. He said this in 1953 and it's on my left forearm (laughs) and I have it there because first of all, James Baldwin is my absolute favorite. James Baldwin was a black intellectual in the civil rights era and he has written so many essays, countless books, and his voice was just beyond his time. He's so eloquent. He moves your soul whenever he talks about race and oppression and reconciliation in America. And it's interesting how he frames all of that. And so I would encourage everyone to read something by James Baldwin. But that's my favorite quote. And the reason why, another reason why it is my favorite quote is because it's true about America. So people are trapped in history and history is trapped in them. 
you said in the beginning that history was not something that you were very passionate about. And you made this point that really stood out to me. And it's something that I noticed and became aware of after I started to learn about the true history of our nation and all the things that had been left out. And I was looking at two children, two white boys who I was raising, and I was responsible for their education. And so I wanted to be a good ancestor, right? And raise Mm -hmm. my children differently than I had been raised in public school systems and so on. And so one of the things that you said was all you really heard about was the civil rights movement and enslavement. These were like the two things where you were introduced to black people in history in the United States. I have a few questions because one thing I'll put out there is that for me, I wanted to introduce my kids to world history first to lay a foundation. Let's look at the creations of all these different kingdoms and all of the different people groups and what's going on with major religions and how is that shaping historically. And I was very intentional in wanting my children to learn about African nations as they were kingdoms with kings and queens and educators and, you know, and like all of these people before they came to the history of enslavement in the United States. So that when they came to it, psychologically, there would be that experience of like, these human beings were picked up, stolen from their land, taken and brutalized by our country. And, and to, mm-hmm. to have to process through the wholeness and the complexity of that so that they could really feel. Do you feel like anything has changed in the teaching of history in schools for kids? From what I know, yes and no. And I say yes and no because states are allowed to teach how they would like to with their curriculums. I'm not in the public school system. I choose not to be. And I choose not to be because Quite frankly, all the history that I know, I know that if I submitted lesson plans, let's say for, I don't know, a ninth or 10th grade American history class, I'd get them returned back to me because I would want to say more (laughs) than what they're wanting me to teach. And I'm like, I can't omit important historical connections. So I think, honestly, Jen, there has been an improvement Mm -hmm. the last, I would say the last five years. But you also, though, still have states like textbooks in Texas textbooks in Mississippi that will tell some history, but they'll omit parts of that same history. So I do know that like McGraw-Hill a few years ago, there was the issue with, I think it was Texas, whenever they were saying how Africans migrated to the United States for work. That is not at all correct. At all. No. (laughs) They did not migrate. African people were stolen. And they were forced onto a ship and they were thrown overboard. Many of them committed suicide. They were tortured. They were brutalized. They were beaten and they were brought to North America to be enslaved. Yeah. So, you know, books are saying this, you know, you you have books in the Deep South that say these things. I saw that to say there there are extremes. And but then there's also just truth. And then there's like half truth. And so whenever it comes to history, I feel like there's still some truth that is withheld. And I'm going to give an example. So this year is going to be the 100th anniversary for the women's right to vote. Well, in schools, they they teach this. okay, And that's all great. But it's not all women. It was white women. And Mm -hmm. so whenever you leave out white women, that very important word white there 
then you give this perception to children, you know, students in school that, oh, all women got their right to vote in 1920. And that was an absolute fallacy. Right. Uh, I mean, you had women, um, you had Elizabeth Cady Stanton saying that she did not want Black people to have the right to vote. One of the most hailed women suffragists. And so the reason I'm saying that, too, is because what should happen is you should say 1920 is number white women got the right to vote. Black mm-hmm. women and women of color did not get the right to vote until 1965. So right. it's an it's important to have that inclusive history. And so in this time, we hear a lot about, oh, you know, diversity and inclusion Many people still don't know what inclusion means, what I've seen, because they right. don't know that the diversity is the what and inclusion is the how. And mm-hmm. we have to do that with history as well. So you can't just omit parts of it and say that you taught it. That's right. not doing history justice. Are people more respectful of your position and opinions as a historian, or do you find that's difficult? I am challenged as a Black woman whenever it comes to my knowledge as a historian. But Mm -hmm. to be honest with you, I use that as fuel. I use it as fuel because I know that my grandma or my great grandma or in my, I mean, even now my parents did not have someone to tell the history that they wanted told. And so I honestly take that and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to prove this and I'm going to continue to use my voice and I'm going to continue to stand up in the face of this adversity and in the face of both white people and black people challenging me and challenging my, my knowledge and my authenticity because I was humbled a lot in graduate school and I grew up seeing my parents be humble people. And so I know that what's supposed to shine through is going to shine through regardless of what people try to do to stop you. So I that's just amazing. keep on keeping on. I, yeah. I just keep on going. I'm like, that's, that's fine. If you don't believe me, I'm going to keep telling this history and I'm going to keep speaking my truth and I'm going to keep doing this racial justice work because someone out here needs this. And it may not be that person. And maybe they're projecting whatever insecurities they have with themselves onto me. But that's not for me to get to get distracted by. So, yeah, I just use it as fuel, to be quite honest, because I'm very confident in who I am as a black woman and as a historian. I'm going to ask you two more questions. So one is I just want you to briefly tell us about the project that you're working on as a Mm co-facilitator. And then I want you to let us know where we can follow you and how we can support your work. Well, I'm part of this group in Wilmington, North Carolina, and it's called the New Hanover County Community Remembrance Project. And what we're doing is we're working to eventually have a ceremony. And this is also through the Equal Justice Initiative. But we're wanting to have a ceremony and collect soil from five different locations in Wilmington where we know Black people were murdered during the 1898 race massacre. The first shots were at 4th and Harnett Streets downtown. And I mean, downtown Wilmington is still a central hub for people to go for entertainment and things like that. So this project is extremely important to highlight this dark history that Wilmington has. And so, yeah, I'm co-facilitator. We recently got our proposal approved, which is great. So the next steps are just, you know, doing different events and raising awareness in the community of what we're trying to do. And then collecting the soil because we have 13 names of Black people we know were killed. And then 
about 10 unknown names. And this pillar is actually at the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. So yeah, mm. it's just collecting the soil. So it's a, it's a really great project and I'm really happy to be part of it. Where can we follow you and find you on social media and how can we support your work? I am on Instagram at sincerely.letty and I'm also on Facebook at sincerely letty. I also obviously have my podcast, which is available on all major platforms. And I'm very receptive to DMs on Instagram, to having conversations with people. So please do not hesitate to contact me. Also, you can email me at sincerelyletty at gmail.com. If there's anyone listening who wants me to speak or what have you, I'm more than happy to do that or even consult with you about something you want to do regarding history or historian work. So yeah, and I'm actually, I'm going to go ahead and put this this plug in here. I'm going to start a Patreon in the near Yay! future. Yeah, Good. so I will definitely have that on my social media platforms. And I will also have a podcast episode, probably one of my Friday fives that I do. Um, I'll mention it there. So that's coming up. So everyone who's listening, please keep an eye out. <laughs> that is awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and for talking to me, but also for the amazing, amazing work that you do. Thank you, Jen. This is this has been great. Thank, thank you for taking time to talk to me so that I can tell people more about who I am and why my work is important. And now for our joy moment. So Jen, what would be one of your moments of joy throughout that weekend? That might be a difficult thing. Yeah. It was such a heavy weekend, but what do you, what do you think? What was a joy moment for you? Being in the midst of you and Letty and the other people in our group and just realizing the power in that interconnectedness and being able to share in this journey with others. It did surprise me that I was able to experience joy over that weekend because it was so heavy in so many ways. And yet being with you and watching you facilitate this and lead us and, and just like, you are amazing. Can I say that? Thank um, you. That was just an honor to be a part of. And I just felt so honored the entire time to be there. And yeah, and just to share in that time with, with so many of you. So um, that was my joy. Well, I appreciate that. And I'm going to basically follow along and, and say the same thing that you just shared. That for me, my joy was the community aspect of the weekend. And that's always what it is each time I lead these trips, the integration of the work and seeing that we are not alone in it. And then not just that we're not alone, but to actually put names and faces to others who feel as strongly about anti-racism and the personal journey that we're all on to be able to connect with and be in the space and share space with other people who are doing this same type of self-reflection and moving that into action. You used a word over the weekend that I felt was very appropriate. You said it, we, this feels appointed. I feel like that was the word that you use. It feels like we were yeah. all not just called to be together for that experience, but it was like an appointment, like at a divine appointment. And so yeah. to sit in our circle together and listen to each 
story that we all shared. There were seven of us there from seven different states. And then to hear the ways that the universe has moved and all of the variety of situations that were occurring in each of our lives mm-hmm. to get us to Montgomery for that weekend to be together. It just feels so purposed. It just feels so meant to be. And it's an honor for me to know that this trip is plays such an important part in other people's anti-racism journey. So that, that brings me a great deal of joy. That's awesome. I just feel like, again, we were in this place where we got to take part in that unfolding of community that is so essential and so important. So it was just so cool. Yeah. Thanks for being a part of it with me. Thanks for having me. So our Black Spotlight for this week is Legacy Trips. Legacy Trips is what I created back in 2018. And that's what just took place. They are three-day weekends where we visit the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, which is also known as the Lynching Museum. And we visit the Legacy Museum from enslavement to mass incarceration. And we utilize the practice and philosophy as yoga as tools to dismantle racism. This was my seventh legacy trip that I led, and these were formerly called Satya Yoga Trips. And there are four more of these trips scheduled for this year. So I'm highlighting it and spotlighting it this week because it is a Black-owned business. I own it. I created it. And I am so excited to open this up to the public, which is really what we're doing for the first time in 2020. So if you would like more information about legacy trips and how to register and sign up to join us for one of the upcoming trips, you can go to LegacyTrips2020.com or send us a message through our website or through our social media pages, or you can contact me directly, email me at tinastronlife at gmail.com. And I'm happy to answer any questions that you have about joining this trip. And thank you to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know. <laughs>